All right, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to read from verse 33 to verse 2 in chapter 12. Kind of a repeat of last week's text with a little different emphasis this morning. And so Paul begins with these words to the Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that he must repay? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, in Jesus' name, reveal these things to us this morning. Reveal to us the extent, the greatness, the depth of your mercy, O Lord. Reveal to us that we belong to you as the body of Christ through that mercy. Reveal to us also, Father, that it is incumbent upon us to worship you and to be transformed from what we were into what you would have us to be, and that all that we do is acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot here in these few little verses. If this sermon and these notes seem familiar to you, that's because I preached this sermon in December, this past December. And I preached it out of order. You may remember I told you that Martin Lloyd-Jones did a, a series on Romans from 1955, I think, to 68. It was 13 years in that block of time. But he did it on Friday evenings, and he would fill the Westminster Chapel with people every Friday, and they'd come out for 13 years. I, I, I wonder how many of them were the same ones that kept coming or were around for the 13. Um, but it was also his opinion that it's very difficult for a, for a pulpit pastor of a small flock of God's people to stick with the series because... Different needs come up in the congregation at different times and need to be addressed. And the pastor is supposed to be alert to those needs that he sees in the congregation. Well, I forget where I was in the series. I could have gone back and researched that a little bit in December. I forget exactly where I was, probably somewhere around, um, around chapter 8, I'm going to guess. And um, I saw a need. We had several families come into the church. You'll look around, you'll see they're not here now. Um, that distressed me. I, I um, tend to take things personally. Um, but the reason I deflected and began to preach on Romans 12 is I knew that the church has lost its way with regard to worship. And I don't believe that many in the church regard it as an inviolable commandment of God. And that it is the outworking of our love for him. Our spouses know, if we love them, that we act in a certain way. And if we don't act in a certain way for long, they wonder if we love them anymore. Why would it be any different with God? It is our first act of love to worship God. And I want to talk about those things. So in December, I diverted as a pastor from the series and went to the section of the epistle that spoke on worship. And now we've come here naturally in our course. So some of this will be repetitive for you, but these are things I talk about all the time. So a lot of these are repetitive anyway. But... Um, Let's go to it, um, beginning with Paul's wonderful celebration when he gets to the point in the epistle when the doctrinal teaching has come almost to an end, and now it's time for application. 
You see, to just know something is an, is an empty knowledge. For the Christian, we have to live what we know, and he's coming to the place in the epistle. And pretty much all of his epistles, in fact, all of the epistles are set up this way, some of them not so neatly as Paul's, to begin with doctrine, which we might say is the theory, and then finish with the application, which we might say is the practice that we are to adopt, you see. Peter and John do it also, but they sort of mix the two together as they go, and there's always some of that. But Paul is a little bit more organized in that in his epistles. And the first half, generally, you have, you'll have the doctrine, and then you'll have the practice for it later. We see that very um, starkly on, uh, on Thursday nights in the, um, in the teaching on Ephesus uh, on the, to the Ephesians. So Paul says these words. After he's announced that great prophecy that all Israel will be saved, which we labored over for some weeks, but he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And he's just glorying in the fact that God is revealing this thing, these things to him. He's just a man, and he knows that's what he is. How unsearchable are his judgments. In other ways, they're past finding out, he says, but you can't just seek God. You can't just study theology and become knowledgeable. God has to do a work of revelation upon you to receive those things. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Rhetorical question. No one has known. And the only way it can be known is if he revealed it. Who has become his counselor? Who's going to tell God what to do? We see that a lot in various ways in the church today. People don't like certain doctrines. They don't like the fact that God does the choosing and the empowering. They want to have their own choices and things. That's a reaction. If you want to know the truth, it's a it's an arrogant human reaction against the revealed will of God and the nature of him. Who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? Your salvation is not a gift, your gift to God. It's his gift to you. For of him and through him and to him are all things. He is the creator, but he's not just the creator. He's the sustainer. If he should hold back his will for a moment, reality would blink out of existence. He holds it together by the force of his magnificent will. And to him and to him alone be glory. Amen. Calvin comments, This exhortation teaches us that until men really apprehend how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never, with a right feeling, worship him. Until men really apprehend, the theologian writes, how much they owe to the mercy of God, they will never, with a right feeling, worship him. You remember the parable Jesus said, and he asked the disciples to comment on it, as he often did, and he said there was a man over here and he was forgiven for a few little things and there was a man over here who was forgiven for great things who will love the Lord more. And they said, well, the one to whom much was forgiven. And he said, you have judged rightly. Friends, recognize how much you have been forgiven and then worship God accordingly. Because if we don't do it, as Calvin writes, we will never with a right spirit worship him. And then he adds this, or be effectively or factually stimulated to fear and obey him. Friends, part of worship is fear of God. Yes, we do things out of fear. We fear the wrath of God. We are assured that those of us who are in Christ will not experience the wrath of God. But there is a fearful wonder about the extent of it, friends. We're talking about eternity. So part of worship is with fear. Work out your salvation with what, Paul said to the Philippians? With fear and trembling. Remember that you're worshiping the creator of the universe. It's not just some guy on the street. And also... 
effectually stimulated, Calvin wrote, to obey him. Obedience comes out of the love and the fear of God. They're very closely related. Obedience, fear, and love. Very closely related in the Christian heart, in his relationship with God. And this is Paul's triumphant close to that doctrinal section of the epistle that I spoke of. He spent the whole of the first 11 chapters meticulously teaching the truths of God's word. The efficacy of his promises. The greatness of his love. The depth of his mercy. And the expectations he has for his people. That's why I read from Revelation. The risen Christ speaking to the churches, telling them what he approves in them and what he disapproves of and what he expects of them. Return to your first love, he said. Remember from where you have fallen, he said. Note this, that the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God are what? Past finding out. The great scholars of the world have missed it, friends. You know, I studied the Old and New Testament in college. I was in a Catholic college. You wouldn't have known it was a religious college back in the 70s. Um, It wasn't like people were all going into the chapel on Sunday. The students were just getting over their hangovers because that's basically what you do in college. But um, when you get the hangover and then you spend Sunday morning getting over it. But um, nobody's laughing. That's fine. Some of you had different experiences, not me. But um, they're past finding out. We, Karen and I, we studied the Old Testament. We studied the New Testament. I've told you these things. We've studied them, but we studied them in the school of what was called higher criticism. Higher criticism. What was that? It's an attempt to show that the writings of the Bible are an outworking of an ancient culture, the Hebrew culture. And they're written by men, not by God. They're full of inconsistencies. And um, the deity part can be explained away by their influences of other cultures upon them and such things. All right? These people who taught us the word of God had no access to what Paul's talking about here. His ways were past finding out to those who thought they could find him out through a course in a book. That's not how it's done. God either opens himself up to you or he doesn't. So I read the Bible, and I've read excerpts from the Bible, knew it quite well, really. Things were not, um, you know, unknown to me about the basic stories of the Bible, but never recognized until that one fateful day where God poured out his spirit on me, and I said, after all this time, I see it in a whole different manner. It's not just a scholarly study. Don't ever let Scripture be just an academic exercise for your mind. It's food for your soul to make you grow and do things differently. It gives you abilities to do things differently. It gives you the ability to resist temptation. People say, oh, I'm so tempted by that. I'm so tempted by that. That's wonderful, but you have the Holy Spirit, friends. We're not recovering We can just say no. That great astrologer once told us, Nancy Reagan, just say no to temptation. We're not like Oscar Wilde who says, I can resist everything except temptation. So friends, God's ways are past finding out. They're unsearchable. You can search, search, search all your life and not find them. You fall to your knees and ask him to show you, and he very likely will. In fact, he says that he will. So there's nothing we can teach God. There's nothing that we offer him. Everything, every blessing, every mercy, every piece of wisdom, every bit of understanding that we may attain pertaining to God will be by divine revelation only. And he has determined that it won't vary or veer off of what has been written. This is the map to God's will, the written word. God's greatest mercy to man, friends, is that he made himself known to him. We may not search him to find him. 
We know that because Paul wrote to the Corinthians of that very thing. He said, the natural man, who's this natural man that he's talking about? Is he over there? The natural man? Is that the guy that eats herbs and granola? No, the natural man is everyone who's had a natural birth. We're the natural man. We're in our natural state. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can he know them. Nor can he know them. Very precise language. I gave you this illustration before. The natural man cannot know God. So you have the the young man, he's in his third grade class. Maybe they don't do this anymore. Teachers are nicer than they used to be, I guess. But he's raised his hand and he'll say, Mrs. Crabtree, can I go to the bathroom? And she'll say, yes, you can. Now sit down. And, and, it, and it, he's waiting, he's waiting, and he's, he's, he's got to ask again, can I go to the bathroom? I'm quite sure that you can, young man. Now sit down. And then he says, Miss Crabtree, may I go to the bathroom? Because may has to do with permission and can has to do with ability. The natural man can not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Not on his own, not without a work of God in his, in his heart, in his mind. Your mind has to be open to it in a miraculous way. And don't ever lose this understanding because it's essential to our evangelism. Paul wrote in, in this epistle, in chapter 8, because the carnal mind, sarkikos, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. The natural man, the natural mind, in your natural birth, you are born enemies of the Lord. That is the gospel, friends. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. In other words, your natural mind can't be made by any human artifice receptive to the will of God. It has to be done by God. The carnal mind, the natural mind, separates us from God. Human initiative cannot disclose to us divine prerogative. You hear people who know nothing of God talk about God's will all the time. It's really their hoped-for will. Or what they heard in a on a greeting card or something somewhere. Human wisdom cannot touch God. It cannot disclose him. It cannot explain him. Human philosophy cannot approach God. All these things are useless to unveil his majesty to us. No one falls on his knees like Paul did and say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways. No one does that apart from the Spirit of God. The scholar in his library doesn't fall on his knees and say, after Brian reads of the virgin birth this morning, he doesn't fall on his knees and say, oh, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The scholar doesn't do that. The scholar just says those poor those, those poor, sad little Hebrews who believed their own myth. That's what the scholar does. He feels bad for you that you actually believe it. Only by God's gracious offer to reveal himself may he be known to us. And he's done so. And he's done it in his word. And for our sake and for our salvation, for our sanctification... And for our ultimate glorification, he's commissioned men to hear from him. And he's determined what they shall hear, they shall write in a book. And so he says it. I mean, we, I told you the story at the end of uh, the book of Romans. We come to chapter 16. I'll read it to you. It's, it's really very interesting. Paul says these words, Timothy, my fellow worker, he's, he's, he's um, addressing people in the congregation. And he says, Lucius, Lucius, Jason, Sosipita, my countrymen, greet you. And then you hear this, I, Tertius, Tertius, who wrote the letter, greet you in the Lord. In other words, Paul's dictating it to another Christian. Tertius, who's sitting in his writing desk, arduously trying to get down what Paul writes and not make any mistakes. And then he says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. In other words, they're in the house of Gaius. They're in Corinth writing this thing. And Paul's sending it to the Romans. 
And so they all took part in this gracious revelation. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And they fall to their knees in worship. When God is made real to you, that's the only one right response. He commanded it to John as well. He said, what you see, sometimes he reveals himself through hearing, sometimes through seeing. He put John in a trance and John saw these visions. He said, what you see, what I give you to see, write in a book and send it to the churches. And so the written word of God is the unveiling of the mind and heart purposes of God. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. And so he writes a warning of that very thing. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. I know many a scholar who are going to receive that curse because they took away the truth of what was written and taught it to other people. Calvin again says, the main difference between the gospel and philosophy, or rather, this is the main difference between the gospel and philosophy, for though the philosophers speak excellently and with great judgment on the subject of morals, yet whatever excellency shines forth in their precepts, it is, as it were, a beautiful superstructure without a foundation. For by omitting principles, they offer a mutilated doctrine, like a body without a head. Or as Jesus said to a group of Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside is full of death and destruction. You see, a philosopher has to grasp at, or what? Guess at, or assess in some finite human way what's right and wrong. They get pretty close sometimes, and that's because there's something of God born into us. Now, I've treated that subject from many angles over time, certainly from Romans 1. What may be known of God is manifest in them, so that man is without excuse for not knowing God. John wrote it this way, Jesus is that light coming into the world that gave light. Jesus is that true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. There is something of the light of Christ in everyone born. Not enough to wipe out the carnal mind. No, for that you need faith in a work of God. But there's some knowledge and understanding of right and wrong. That's why the unbeliever knows that it's wrong to steal, although that's going out of style. Stealing is in style now. It's a fashion. Morals have become fashionable. In other words, they come and go like trends, like clothing and um, other things. But the philosopher guesses at morals. When a society is devoid of moral sense, common sense is far less moral and far less common. You see, this, the philosopher thinks certain things. He, he believes in common sense. There was a time when there was a sort of common sense. But it was because of our Christian forebears and the Christian culture they created that lingered long after all the believers had passed away en masse. People still knew there was something right about monogamy. There was something good about being married. There's something good about... Um, not coveting someone else's things. There was something good about not killing your neighbor when you don't like him. There was something right about that, something wrong about the people that do that stuff. And so they had this sense. They didn't know where it was from, though. They thought it was, quote, common sense. Well, we have to call it sense now because it's not common anymore. Common sense tells us to abort our nation's children by the millions. Why? It's convenient. It's convenient for people. Apart from a divine moral compass, convenience becomes the new morality, and Francis Schaeffer predicted that it would. He said the two twin morals of modern evangelicals is personal peace and affluence. Just don't let it come near me. And I won't speak up because it'll take away my personal peace. I'll make enemies if I speak up. And they might cancel me and they might take away my affluence. 
seems to me that his prophecy has been fulfilled in our time. Morality is known today by its usefulness to man. It's totally utilitarian utilitarian instrument. Sorry about words today. (laughs) A utilitarian instrument. In other words, society decides what makes a successful society, and they say that's the moral choice. Although history has produced no lasting evidence of civil the success of civilizations has it they've all passed away they've all fallen to ruins but with every conjecture or contrivance they propose they must guess as to its ultimate source of authority that's the difference we have an authority that we know and we respect and we trust and the philosopher doesn't have that he's his own authority that's as far as his wisdom can go as far as his carnal mind will allow him to go He cannot go beyond it. And the poor philosopher feels badly for those of us who have taken that blind leap of faith into a world of promises and miracles and has no conscience or no understanding of the authority that promised those things and performed those miracles. They must yield to the notion that right and wrong are human constructions. Christianity has no such restriction. When the ultimate has spoken, the truth is known. His speech is light. His will is perfect. His purposes are inviolable. They will be upheld. That's why he could speak to children. In in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 1, when he said, Children, obey your parents because it's a nice thing to do. No, no, he said, children, obey your parents because it's a good idea and it's worked well for some. No, he said, children, obey your parents because it is right. Only God can say that. The Almighty doesn't wander into subjective neighborhoods. He doesn't have a suggestion box. He's not looking for help. No, obey, he says to children. Why? Because it's right. And I'm the authority. The philosopher has no such authority. And because he knows he doesn't have it, he refuses to recognize it. All to his own demise, as I've pointed out. But the apostle celebrates the authority, and so do we. He revels in it. It's his precious ornament around his neck. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. But the man of God must never stop at the threshold of doctrine. That's why we have chapters 11 through 16. You don't just stop. Well, I know. I know all this stuff now. Um, give me the test. I'll get an A and I'm done. Knowing's only half the battle, friends. It's half the mandate. And friends, it's half the glory. In fact, without the other half... It's no glory at all. In fact, it will condemn you if you don't live it. If you know it and don't live it, you're more condemned than the one who doesn't even have that insight. A truth truly known is a truth lived. To know is knowledge conceived. To walk it is knowledge fulfilled. Lloyd-Jones becomes quite critical of the formalist, and he says this, the man, or the formalist, rather, is the man who does knows much but does little about it that's the formalist and so he writes my dear friend the question is how are you living not what do you know (laughs) how are you living it's not good it's not good being a great theologian if you deny it all by your behavior and he goes on to say if you're rude to your wife or children or to your next door neighbor you're a denier of the gospel and all your knowledge is of no value the whole person is involved in the new birth but having said that which we all know we all say walk the walk don't just talk the talk and you know i hate cliches but um we all say that we all hear it right um i'm hearing it a lot lately in the campaigns of these unknown people that are running for office he walks the walk i'm like oh that's good Um, But try to remember one thing. You don't throw out the other side either. The knowledge is important for the walk. Because you'll never rightly walk without the knowledge. It really has to always be a marriage of the two. Or as Francis Schaeffer said again, living for Christ 
in the totality of life. And he goes on, Lloyd-Jones goes on to give several reasons for moral behavior. Number four is this. The fourth reason for continuing to study the rest of Romans is the intimate connection between doctrine and practice, belief and behavior. In other words, we don't compartmentalize Christ. He's not all doctrine, right? He's not all works. It's a marriage of the two. And don't be afraid of the word, word works because they won't save you. We all know that. But we must have them. He prepared good works that you shall walk in them, he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So where would be our prize if all we did was study the doctrine? Doctrine is our theory, if you will. And theory without practice is a dead doctrine. Truth apart from action is truth denied. James said as much when he said, be doers of the word. Why? Because if you're hearers only, you're deceiving yourself. You haven't internalized the doctrine, the understanding. You haven't internalized the reason God gave you the faith. It's to live it out. A faith that has no power to prompt action is a dead faith. James knew this. Paul knew this. And so where does the believer go first after believing? Where does he take his newfound knowledge? What will he do with this perfect wisdom? There is but one thing, and that's what chapter 12 introduces. You have this knowledge now. You fall to your knees in celebration of the unsearchable riches of God. There's only one thing you can now do with all this wonderful revelation, is worship the, the revealer. For what is the chief end of man, the shorter catechism tells us? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now friends, that doesn't mean you can say, well, I stay home with my Bible and I just worship God and I glorify Him. I hope you do that every day. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about worshiping as a congregation. Do you know in Hebrew culture, you're going through sometimes the Psalms and you know how they have a little script at the top to describe the psalm and sometimes it says to be played to certain instruments and to be sung to the tune of such and such right well one of those little scripts at the top sometimes you'll see it'll say song of a sense of a sense what's an ascent it's going up right well the temple was on a mount called zion and they had songs of ascent where all the Jews would come out on the Sabbath evening and they would walk up the mountain to the, to the, to the temple singing the cultural songs of ascent, which were the psalms for that purpose. They would sing on the way to church. Songs of ascent. They all came out together. It was glorious. That's what Paul's talking about here. If you know God truly, you will worship Him and you'll put aside every other thing for that purpose. If you love Him, you'll worship Him in a way that's acceptable to Him, he wrote. And the way of worship is also designed by Him. We don't make it up. The church has run into so much trouble by making it up. He won't be worshipped alongside other gods. You ever go to into a um, Unitarian church? I... Married my brother-in-law, Karen's brother. I did, the, I did the sermon for his wedding. And we were in the, um, the United Nations. Uh, for some reason, I'm going to say the World Trade Center. We were in the United Nations. You ever been in the United Nations? They have a chapel in there. You can get married in there. You can reserve it and get married. But it's a Unitarian chapel. And behind me was the... Was the uh, the, the Muslim insignia, the yin-yang, all of the things were all around me. But, I, but then somewhere in there was a little black Christ. On, I mean, a little black, a black cross, right? And so I was in there just to proclaim Christ and to deny all those other things. But I was in the UN. <laughs> and so I married my brother-in-law in the UN. Um, but the things that I brought to the to the ceremony were, were Christian values, were, was the word of God, was Christian vows between he and his wife. And by the way, they're still married, and they have a great marriage. <clears throat> but 
Yeah, so we don't add things. We don't worship alongside other gods, right? We don't bring accessories to worship, you know, like graven images or statutes. For the life of me, I've never understood how the Catholic Church gets around that. There's ten commandments. Your whole witness is to break them. I don't understand it. Images, paintings, statues. Nothing wrong with images, paintings, and statues. But they can't be part of your worship. They can't be included in your presentation of your gifts to God. Lighting candles, repetitive prayers, or prayers to dead saints. God will not receive the artifices of in the intentions of man. Friends, this was why we had a Protestant Reformation, because of those things. When people read the word and found out those were anathema to God, and mass, the whole Western world, or half the Western world, turned against them. Caused great upheaval in those days. God will not receive the artifices or intentions of man. If there's any application of the first 11 chapters of the epistle, it's that we are to worship God in a way that's acceptable to him, and the only way that's acceptable to him is the way that's designed by him. We don't make it up. He wants to be proclaimed, number one. He wants to be praised in songs. He wants to be prayed to. Why? Because he's the only source. Of anything we would desire. He's the source of all we have. So we pray prayers of thanksgiving. He wants all those things. He wants us to deliver the sacrament. The breaking of bread. And there's really not much else. To the woman at the well. Jesus said you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. That's the difference friend. We worship what we know. And then he says, for salvation is of the Jews. You know that mythical, insignificant little Hebrew society, little cultural, you know, that the anthropologist told us about? And then he said, but the, the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship. When true worshipers will worship. In other words, there's false worshipers. There's true worshipers and there's false worshipers. I have advice for you today. Be a true worshiper. And you will worship the Father. And how will you do it? You'll do it in spirit. And you do it in truth. Why? Because the Father is seeking such to worship him. And then he says, verse 1, I beseech you therefore. In other words, after all this 11 chapters, I've stuffed your hearts and minds with knowledge. I now beseech you, brethren, by the mercy of God, which by now hopefully you understand the extent of it. I beseech you by the mercy of God that you present your body to him. Oh, I thought, spirit, I thought worship was spiritual. It is. But don't forget to bring your body. He wants it there. It's a living sacrifice. You can't have a living sacrifice of your spirit. How are you going to do that? And listen what he writes. Holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And I'm going to break that down for you, because reasonable service does not mean what we normally think of when we say reasonable service. So we're called to worship him in spirit and truth. But here to the Romans, he says, don't forget to bring your bodies. Show up! You know, I was asked to do a wedding for um, a relative, close relative. Now, I had said a while back, I'm not going to do that kind of thing anymore. I'm just, I'm just going to do that within the church, when people within the church um, need me to solemnize a, a marriage. I'll do it. But because it was a close relative, I, I broke my... Um, rule and I said yes I'll, I'll do it as long as it's what not on Sunday as long as it's not on Sunday and he wrote back to me and he said um, no 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 it's, we're getting married on a Friday and I'm like okay Friday's, Friday's good but by the way we don't have time for any prayers literally said that we're in a time crunch don't have time for prayer then you don't have time for me. You know, you don't hire me out. You know, Pastor, uh, Pastor Ken once said, 
because he was never paid. He gave he gave a lot of money to the church, but he didn't take any. And he all and he had a view, and he said, you know, you got to be very careful that a paid pastor can become a kept woman. And I, I, that's the crudeness of Ken, but I knew what he meant. And listen, you can fire the pastor, but you can't tell him what to say, because then he's not a pastor. You can give critique, you can give suggestions. But, you, but the pastor is either the man of God designated by God to lead the church, or he's not. The pastor cannot be a kept woman because he relies on you for his meat. So we're called to worship him in spirit and truth. But here to the Romans, he writes, bring your bodies because the Lord of all creation would have us be bodily present before him. He saved our sinful souls and he'll glorify our mortal bodies. Acceptable worship to God is designed by God. It's commanded by God. It's called the regulative principle. We're supposed to regulate worship according to the things that God said should be included in that ceremony. And so we can see that the first major directive, the essential application of knowledge, is that we make a bodily presentation of ourselves before God. Can you imagine the Jews all coming out on Friday evening? They didn't use the names of our weekdays, but let's call it Friday evening, right? And they're marching up, singing the songs of praise, up the hill to worship. They're technically not even worshiping yet. They're preparing their hearts for worship through song, and they're using God's word to do it. So you worship with your body. You can worship on Zoom if you like, but I hardly believe you can convince the Lord that such a thing can be described as a living sacrifice. I'm going to sit in my jammies on my bed and watch it on TV. Not really my idea of a living sacrifice. I don't think that's, that's going to work. And of course, we're fortunate to have those kind of things for those times when we can't be there and we've seen that but the lord would have us be present before him be counted as one of the holy congregation of god's people and if it's not easy all the better let it become cumbersome then you'll know the meaning of living sacrifice and by the way the um i did bow out of doing the family wedding but apparently the bridal shower is on Sunday morning and our ladies had to bow out of that. We don't go to those things. Friends, your witness to God is not, oh, somebody might need, need the gospel and I'll give it to him when I get there. No, the witness to God is people that love him, worship him in this time frame and nothing gets in the way. And when I brought this out in December when I preached this, I think I lost some souls over it. I don't want to lose anyone. But those of us that are here, I want to gain us in, and have us be really here for God. Because if you remember what happened last year was Christmas was on the Sabbath day. And people were exchanging it. And I had to make a distinction. And I know some people did not like it. But when it comes right down to it, Christmas is a thing added in. It's not given to us by God. It's, it's a human tradition. We have liberty to do it, but we don't throw away the commandments to do it. You follow me? And, I'm, and I made that strongly. I always have, and I, and I do it again today. There are certain things in this life that present themselves to us as more important than worshiping God. And those things, let me tell you, are not sent by God. The ancients presented dead sacrifices, but Christ died once for all. He rose from the dead and he brought us with him. Or have you already forgotten the doctrine that says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. I don't know how you do that for on Zoom. 
Present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. I'm kind of picky about those things. I've, I've um, <clears throat> shaken some people up before because I said I never pray with a recorded prayer leader. Like you ever, you're, you're ever um, you know, watching, say, a minister on TV or online or something, and the sermon's 10 years old, and then he prays. It's like, friends, a, a piece of celluloid, reel to reel, or a CD, or a recorded message is not a human heart praying. And I've always had, call it a pet peeve, but I just can't believe that a recorded prayer is heard by God. A prayer has to come out of a living, breathing soul. It was a prayer when it was prayed, but it's not one anymore. Even when I listen to myself preaching on Sunday morning, I turn it off so I don't want to hear the prayer again. I usually just, just turn it off. The prayer's already been prayed. And that thing is not my soul. My soul's in here somewhere. Sounds silly to you, doesn't it? No. <laughs> I'll tell you, I had some arguments about this. I remember with Gwen one time, she really shaken up that I said that. So do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. We think of worship as primarily spiritual, and it is. But God, unlike the ancient and modern Gnostic, does not despise the body that he created. You know, let me tell you something, because maybe we don't have an understanding of this, but your body is not evil. It's good, in fact. In fact, the Gnostics got into trouble with recognizing the humanity of Christ because the Gnostics believed that all matter, anything you could touch and feel and had weight, was therefore evil, and therefore Christ could not have a real body. Christ was born of a woman, a natural woman. He did not inherit evil from that. And neither do we. It's our souls that are fallen. Our bodies aren't in and of themselves evil. They're subject to sin, and that's why they corrupt and fall away and die. So present your bodies to God. Now, before we get to the essential part of the verse, which is our reasonable service, we should look into some of the language that brings us to that point. First of all, the apostle says, I beseech you. And who does he beseech? He beseeches brethren. That is who? The saints. And the plea is not really a plea, friends. It's a demand. Though the apostle beseeches, we dare not say no to the offering. And we have to understand that that is the way the apostle speaks sometimes. That would be like the believer who lets the elements of communion pass him by while he falsely humbles himself. This is a thing also I have taught, very different from what you've probably heard in your past life, but you do not pass by the elements of communion when they're before you. If you have something to confess before God, do it and cleanse yourself in the moment before your maker. But that's like walking by the bleeding Christ on the cross and saying, thank you, I'll be back when I clean up my act. We have to remember that. We're not partaking um, sinfully if we had an argument with our wife on the way to church. We're not in and out of the body of Christ. We're in it. And the sacrament is for us. And if you have something on your heart to confess before God, then do it. Do it publicly if you want. But make your heart right. And if you're of God, partake of the elements. But if you're not, do not. When you think of it, you were never really worthy to partake of worship anyway. We don't do it because we're worthy. You know, I have bad weeks and I think, I'm really not feeling like worship, like uh, leading the worship today. And then I thought, when did I ever think I was worthy? You just, some things you just do, right? Because you're called to do them. Your bad attitude on the way to church doesn't disqualify you for God's sacrament, sacrament rather. He said, do it in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do it in remembrance of yourself. 
When you do such things, you deny yourself the first and most essential right of the person whom God justified, as though having been justified by God, you may be in need of further justification. You either are justified or you're not. And you didn't do it yourself in the first place, and you can't do it for yourself now. So when the bread and the wine comes to you, partake of it with jo- in the joy of the Lord. When you don't come to the, to the altar of worship of the one true God, you're denying him. You put yourself again under the law that, declared, that God declared you are dead to. Don't go back under the law. <clears throat> you know, people have made fun of, the, of Calvinism because we use the, the tulip acrostic. And um, a young preacher told me one day, well, the... Arminians have, a, have a, a flower, too. It's the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. No, God loves you as much as he ever did. You can't make him love you more. And here's a newsflash. You can't make God love you less than he does right now. You have no effect on that. You're not lovable anyway. I mean, to me, you are. But to God, we're really just all the same. And we don't know why he loved some and not others. I hope we find out someday, but then again, maybe we don't need to know. I think we're on a need-to-know basis with the Lord when it comes to that. Now, living sacrifice. We know your body's living, but how is it a sacrifice? Well, sacrifice has to do with resisting desires. It has to do with ignoring needs. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm bored. I'm depressed. Those things, you have to ignore those things. Those become excuses to not be present when the word of God is preached to you. It's not a sacrament, but it's sacramental, isn't it? To hear from God at the appointed time. I, too, have all those things. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired, I'm bored, I'm depressed, I'm ticked off. And I don't feel like preaching. I come and preach anyway. Sometimes maybe you see that in me. But I'll gladly endure hunger and fatigue and boredom and depression for the hour of worship because there is an element of sacrifice in the rigors of daily life, in the temptations to do other things, and in the disappointments of the moment. And you will, if you're a believer, you will probably leave refreshed, if not by the words from the pulpit or the songs from the instruments, but by the fellowship of the saints who are there to encourage you with what? The word of God. He didn't call us to present our bodies as models of comfort and joy. He said living sacrifices. To bring a dead sacrifice is an abomination. It's to put Christ to an open shame, Hebrews 6.6. To present yourself a living sacrifice is the core and kernel of genuine worship. You know, Lord, it wasn't easy getting here today. But I'm here. And I'm here for you. He writes that your body and your presentation and your sacrifice must be holy. And what does he mean? He says holy. He says acceptable to God. Nothing comes rightly before God without first being consecrated. And what does that mean? Set apart for holy use. You've been set apart for holy use. You're like a utensil in the tabernacle, right? In In the temple. And they take the utensil out on the Sabbath day and use it in the worship service. You're a utensil, and you're set apart in the tabernacle for God's use on the Sabbath day. And yet there's an aspect of invitation that I'm quite certain the ancients knew more about than we do. The ancients knew that when the king invited you, you had to put put it aside. You know, there's a movie that... Me and the boys like to watch. We always watch the same old movies. Well, they don't, but I do. And um, there's one about a king. I'm not going to get specific. But the king um, loves this woman. But the woman already had someone she loved. But he didn't care. I'm the king. And when I love someone, they should love me. Because I'm the king. And I'm demanding it. Now... It's wrong for a human king to be that way, but it's right for God to be that way. 
when the king invites you, it's an insult to have something better to do. In fact, it's a deadly insult. The king asks once. He expects compliance. And Jesus taught this very thing in a parable where we read, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. But they all with one accord began to do what? Make excuses. They didn't know who was inviting them. They made excuses. The master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes in the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Or as one, I heard one Pentecostal preacher preach it one day. He said, Bring in the blind and the crippled and the crazy. Hallelujah. And the servant did so, and the master observed, still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those who were invited shall taste my supper. And I think you know what that means. Reasonable service. As I've said to you before, it's an unfortunate translation, I think. It's technically correct. Modern use of language renders it difficult to understand, however. Reasonable in the Greek is the word logikos. We get words like logical from that, right? Which has to do with reason or thinking, right? Logikos. From the lexicon, we read this as a definition. Logikos means pertaining to the reasoning faculty. Reasonable, rational, is used in Romans 12.1. And then it says the sacrifice is to be intelligent in contrast to those offered by ritual and compulsion. In other words, all these things that are incumbent upon us, that are commandments of us to worship God, we're not supposed to come because we're commanded. We're supposed to come because we were invited by a person we want to be near. And so the presentation is to be in accordance with the spiritual intelligence of those who are new creatures in Christ and are mindful of the mercies of God. So reasonable, which in the vernacular means right. Someone could say something to you, you go, yeah, that's reasonable. And you mean that's fair. you're, You're bartering over terms. Yeah, those are reasonable terms. That's not what this means. It might mean fair, it might mean sensible. It sounds reasonable, or it sounds sensible. You could say either, right? You could say it's appropriate. Or you could say reasonable could mean moderate. Right? Let's be reasonable. In other words, let's put down your harsh side, my harsh side, and we'll come somewhere in the middle. That's not what reasonable means here. The word reasonable means by the power and use of reason, and it refers to mindfulness or intelligence. And keep this in mind when we consider the next word, which is service. Reasonable in this context, logikos, means intelligent or thinking or thoughtfully. And service means worship service. So come thoughtfully to worship God. You're bringing your body, but you're bringing your mind also. And so the word for worship here is latria. And the word means, from the lexicon, it says, of the service of God in connection with the tabernacle. So reasonable service means intelligent worship. Reasonable service. We use the word service to mean helping of someone or giving assistance to. So the phrase reasonable service in general conversation would mean do moderately good works. That's not what he's saying here. The phrase has a completely different meaning. Reasonable means intelligent and service means worship as in worship service. The call of the apostle is to offer our bodies and our minds toward the end of intelligent worship. Lloyd-Jones writes this, The first great motive for Christian living is intellectual. It begins in the mind. Christians do not merely live according to their feelings and impulses. They're governed by their understanding of truth. They know who they are, and they realize that they must behave accordingly. We could hardly worship in spirit and truth without engaging our minds to doctrinal instruction and employing our bodies to act accordingly. 
This is Paul's great incitement to worship God with the whole spirit, soul, and body. And the epistle carries with it the model for all biblical instruction. It begins in the mind with right doctrine. And it ends with an application for right living before God. But there's more to worship even than that. We offer our reasonable service, which is our intelligent worship. But we also offer our inner man, our heart, and our emotions to God. There's a wonderful little verse from the book of Acts which says this. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And we've covered the doctrinal aspect of worship. We spoke of bodily presence. And so our minds and bodies that are being engaged in the act of worshiping God. But note the apostle also writes this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's an appeal to your inner man, to your heart. I beseech you. You don't have to command the lover of God to worship him. You just beseech him and remind him. For the elder does not lord it over the brethren, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, but rather beseeches them to compliance with all the aspects of Christian life and worship. The passage from Acts goes on to speak of fellowship. Further in the passage, we read of the joy of these new, that these new converts experience. That's the first 3,000 converts, if you remember. So worship breaks out in joy. There should be an element of joy always in the worship. And so he writes this, do not be drunk with wine. And believe me, this isn't about wine. People always want to go off on this being about wine. Um, He's making a comparison here. Be not drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing, make melody in your heart to the Lord. Give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, be intoxicated with the Spirit. And that intoxication is known by spiritual joy and peace with God and revelation knowledge. It's not an artificial stimulant. It it comes from within. Prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, sacrament, singing, preaching, and teaching with thanksgiving. These are the elements of true worship. Do all these things with great care and diligence because darker times may be on the horizon and the church needs to be prepared. I don't see the world as getting better but getting worse for believers. There's no New Testament statement that our efforts will usher in a great age of true worship of the one true God, but we have our mandate. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. I believe we've preached in season for a long time, and we're coming to the out-of-season part of history. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Friends, convince, rebuke, exhort are hard terms. It's all part of preaching. You're not making suggestions. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. He's telling this to the pastor of the Ephesian church, Pastor Timothy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. We're seeing that. I heard MacArthur preach a sermon the other day in his young days when he was a pastor for eight years. You know, his father and grandfather were pastors before him in the church. And 250 people walked out of his church. Now, if you want to know how that makes a pastor feel, the first thing you do is you you think it's about you. And it probably is. It's something you said. But is it about God and what he said and they didn't want to hear it or you didn't couch it with nice terms? He's convincing, rebuking, exhorting with all long suffering and teaching. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. If it was sound doctrine, friends, I'm afraid we have to say, it's very sad, but let them go. We don't change the doctrine for the protester. We try to renew the protester and reacquaint him with the doctrine. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they heap up for themselves teachers, and they'll turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Oh, how we love fables. 
but you be watchful. They're turned aside to fables, but you be watchful. Endure all things. <coughs> Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Father, in Jesus' name, empower us to this end, that we might be mighty worshipers of you, O Lord, in spirit and in truth, for we are those whom you have sought out, O Lord, to worship in spirit and truth. The hour has come, and we are here, and we're grateful to be here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.